You are listening to episode five of the Money Owners Podcast with me, Morgan Rochard. Money Owners is a group financial coaching program that takes all the information in this podcast to the next level, providing you with live help for your financial needs. The Money Owners Podcast is designed to help you sort out who you are financially, the issues you're having with money, and how to tackle them to be the best version of yourself. And we can't do all of this in one episode. You'll get some good old-fashioned information on being financially awesome. And as a side note, this podcast does not provide any investment advice, and nothing in this podcast should be misconstrued to be investment advice. If you'd like more information on Money Owners Coaching, the podcast, the homework, and everything I have to offer, visit moneyowners.com. Hello there. I'm super excited to have our first Q&A episode. So a few weeks back, I had an ask on Twitter and on Facebook for people to send in their questions and ask us about everything that they wanted to know regarding their finances. And we got tons of questions. And we're super excited to launch the first Q&A today. So I have my co-host here, Mark Guastafari, who's going to walk me through all of the questions that you guys have. Mark's fantastic and has been in finance for the last decade. So he probably knows more than me about all this stuff. And I'm sure we'll have good insights on everything that you guys want to hear about. So with that, Mark, take it away. Thank you, Morgan. That's really kind of you. I appreciate the intro. Um, So let's start with the first question here. Um, Morgan, I already started my small business and I am a couple of years in. I really wish someone would have told me all the things I needed to know about finances prior to starting a business. Can you share this information for those who are just starting out? Also, what are some of the things I should be thinking about now that I'm two years in and cash is still tight? Thank you. All right. So this is a fantastic question and I think is really good for our listeners, which are mostly small business owners. So I would say the number one thing you need to know before you start a small business is that your personal expenses will drown you. It is never the, um, it's never your business expenses. I mean, you should definitely come up with a business plan and have a good idea of what your expenses are going into it. But that said, like if you're good at keeping track of what you do, having a good idea of like what's coming in and what's going out, it's the personal expenses I would say for the most part, that end up drowning businesses because they just can't keep their lifestyle afloat while they're trying to get this business up and running off the ground. Uh, Mark, would you say that that tends to be true as well? Yeah, I would totally agree. I mean, having gone through it right now in the middle of it, that's absolutely true. Uh, And that's something that most people don't account for, right? Because you're so focused and so tied up in the business and all the expenses and trying to optimize that you do forget about your lifestyle Uh, and you have to be willing to make adjustments. Yeah, for sure. Um, And I would say like, it's really important to be vigilant about managing your cash flows both in the business and personally. So like a lot of what we've talked about in the last couple of episodes is just kind of managing your mind around your money and making sure that like, you don't just, um, you know, spend unintentionally about things. Um, And it's the same that goes into your business. So you want to make sure that you're intentionally spending in your business that you're making investments in things that actually matter in the business rather than just kind of throwing darts at a board and hoping that something will stick. I've seen that quite a bit for some of my clients where they're not really sure what will make them money. So they might spend on multiple things, hoping that something will be the thing. And that's fine if you've planned really well going into your business. But if you haven't and cash flow is tight going in, like you need to be a lot more conscious about what you're spending money on. Yeah, I would totally agree. Uh, 
you know, at this point to, to kind of address what the listener here is talking about already, she already, it seems like took the launch and started and perhaps cash is still a bit tight. I would say don't ever be afraid to do part-time work if you can as well to just generate some additional cash flows just to kind of keep it going if you need to. Yeah, that's a great point. So um, something that's kind of underplayed is is doing some part-time work or kind of finding some cash flows on the side while you make it work in your business. And I would say like that is definitely a great place to to start because like you want to price yourself accordingly in the business that you're trying to build. And you don't want to just take on clients because you need clients. You want to be coming from a place of abundance rather than scarcity, which we talked about in our last episode. And the best way to do that is to not feel like you're desperate to get business all of the time. Um, so yeah, I mean, I would say it's something I kind of wish that I did was instead of taking on maybe not the right fit and not the right clientele for me, um, maybe if I had done some, some work on the side, I wouldn't have had to do that. But instead I put myself in a situation where I ended up having to, to like, to get rid of clients later on that weren't a good fit for my, for my business. Um, and I would also say like, Hangups about your finances are kind of, they're usually more about your thoughts and what you're making those things mean rather than anything else. So while it is really important to like, to actually manage your cash flow as well, and be pretty vigilant about keeping a spreadsheet of what's coming in and what's going out or using QuickBooks or some other software to help you, I would say like, what you're making your income or your expenses mean is usually a real like a thing that could drown your business. Um, And if you think for if you think that like it's not something that you can do, right? If like in your brain you say, okay, I'm not good at finances. Like I'm I'm great at the thing that I'm launching my business for, but I'm not really good at the finance part. Um, that may or may not be true, but if you believe that to be true, then it will be true, uh, and it'll become a self fulfilling prophecy. So that's the at that point, like even early on in where cash flow is tight, maybe it does make sense to hire a bookkeeper or somebody else. Um, a planner to come help in help with managing your cash flows and kind of keeping you honest with yourself. Wonderful. So let's okay, move cool. on to question two. Um, hey Morgan, I was curious to hear a thoughtful discussion around life insurance, specifically how much coverage and how long to get. I know the rule of start with ten times your net income and also think about what liabilities look like. For example, mortgage, future college tuition, etc. Should you give consideration to padding that figure a bit to make sure your spouse is completely financially independent? Or are you risking being overinsured at that point? In terms of length of time, my thinking is you want to coverage through the end of college for your youngest kid. Does it make sense to push a bit further and get coverage for when your youngest child is into the mid-20s? Again, don't want to risk being overinsured. Thanks so much. Yeah, so this is a great question. And I hate to start this question with it depends. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of like a lot of financial questions are really we're going to start with it depends. Um, and I'm sure our listener, listeners can like create a drinking game about it or something. Um, but it really does depend on what you want to cover um, and what what you want your life after your life to look like, right? So you get married and you have a wife or a husband and you get and you have kids. Uh, and that's usually a good place to start when you're thinking about life insurance. Um, generally, like liabilities that you want to cover um, are, is a reason to get life insurance. Um, so if you're just married, maybe you don't want to have life insurance on each other. It kind of depends on, on what you're thinking. But specifically when kids come into play, it's a, it's a good place to start. Um, but that said, like, it depends on how you want it to look like after after you die. So 
Um, I think I'll give you an idea. So if you both have life insurance and you are covered properly, then you probably will be overinsured if you both die. And that's okay. Like that's not necessarily an issue. Um, I would say that that makes them that makes sense and is the least likely scenario to happen is that like you, your your spouse, and your kids all die at the same time. Um, so yeah, I, I would I wouldn't worry about that. But that said, like it depends on how you want the outcome to look. So if you want your spouse to like be able to let's say retire early. Um, and retire, I use that term loosely. I mean, I really mean it like they can live off of the income from their investments. That way they don't feel like they have to go out there and pound the pavement to get a bunch of income in while like also raising your children. Um, so there are ways to think about it where like you can use a safe withdrawal, right? So let's say your, your expenses are something like 80 grand a year. Um, the safe withdrawal rate that people use, and we can get into like what a safe withdrawal rate is and what that means and all that other good stuff. But Let's just assume that the safe withdrawal rate is 4% and not get into all the details about it. So if safe withdrawal rate is 4% and you want to spend $80,000 a year, you want your spouse to be able to spend $80,000 a year, then you would need $2 million in coverage. That said, that's like probably the max that you would need in coverage. Um, and I say that because like the safe withdrawal rate is actually a pretty like the minimum that your spouse would be able to take out. Um and like that, those assets would actually probably grow over time and your spouse might actually end up with an estate planning problem. So <laughs> um, if you don't want to risk being overinsured, I would probably start with that number and back down. Um, but there are other ways to do it. So like you can ladder policies where you have a 10-year policy, a, 10, a 20-year and a 30-year policy. That way, like the terms sort of expire. So like you probably need the most coverage at the beginning when your kids are really, really young. Um, and maybe even a bunch more coverage when um, at the 20 year term, because you probably want to cover school. But the 30 year, you probably just have as like a little extra something that can like help out the family if something did happen to you later on in your life. Um, so that's kind of another way to think about it. And there's some good calculators online. Um, I saw one on Nerd Wallet that I liked. So I'll link to that in the show notes. Um, but ultimately, it's really what you feel comfortable with. Like it's probably okay to be a little bit overinsured. Right. It's better right. to be overinsured than underinsured. Yeah. Or uninsured at all, right? I mean Yeah, reality, or uninsured. Right. I mean the reality is people don't really like to talk about death and insurance. It's just it's tough to talk about and think through. And so they don't do it. Um and Morgan, I I love the idea of laddering, you know, some of some of the policies, right? Because the idea here is, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, then presumably you're looking to take control of your financial situation, which is great. And likely 25, 30 years from now, you'll have really built up your your net worth to a number where you're pretty comfortable and can probably self-insure a lot of it. So to, to have it to have most of it up front is 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 great when you really need it. Yeah, definitely. And also these policies, like a 10-year policy is a lot cheaper to buy than a 30-year policy. So you'll be able to, by, by laddering, you'll have actually a cheaper, like cheaper premiums essentially, and you'll be able to save more that will ultimately help you self-insure later, which is the whole idea. Like you want to get to a point where you are self-insuring that you don't actually need the income, like that your spouse doesn't actually think that you're worth more dead than alive, right? That would be the, the worst case scenario. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. And then also like to go to the, to the part about the 10 times your net income, I don't like that 
metric because it doesn't take into account any assets that you already have. So I think you're most likely to be overinsured if you use that rule and you have assets. If you don't have any assets, then that's probably a great rule of thumb. Um, but if you if you do have assets, then maybe like you could start with 10 times your income and then subtract off the assets um, and include some future liabilities for sure. Um, but then again, it kind of goes back to your goals. Like if you die, do you want to be able to cover 100% of your kid's college? Or if you die, do you want your spouse to live in your home without a mortgage? Or maybe you don't own property. So like if you died, maybe you want your spouse to be able to buy a piece of property so that they don't have to worry about paying rent. So there are a lot of things that go into it, which is why like, I kind of started this with, it depends. Um, and it does actually, I think, make sense to talk to somebody who is like a you know, quality life insurance person who won't lead you down the dark path of what I call whole life investments. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't want to go too much into that because I think that that's giving investment advice and that's like, that's taboo here. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Morgan, you know, what they can do is there are plenty of CFPs that work on a fee-based, uh, project-based uh, situation and perhaps you know, for four or five hundred dollars plus, someone can take a look at you know and do a one-time financial plan. Someone that's you know, trusted, qualified, uh, that can really take a look at your situation and provide some insight and some advice. And then you can revisit yeah, it every for year, sure. so you're not tied into uh, to an ongoing annual situation. Maybe you just need one time, right? Yeah, definitely. And not to like to plug XY Planning Network, but they are a great resource for something like this. There are a lot of really experienced planners who are all fiduciaries on that website who like uh, there I'm sure there's a, there's a bunch of them. I don't know what percentage of them are actually one-time fee-only planners, but um there are definitely people on there that do hourly or who just have like a, you know, $500 consult where you get like exactly what you need done. Right. Great. Um, yeah, and I guess I wanted to add one more note on that. So my husband and I specifically, we were talking about this because um, we just recently did our estate planning and because um, we have a nine-month-old at home and honestly, it's actually kind of embarrassing that we didn't do it earlier, but that doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, so like they ask you, oh, like how much do you have in life insurance? Because it actually matters for your estate plan. Like if we do both die, you know, then like we have this like amazing estate or whatever, which which I don't think is actually true, but like by New York state standards, we do. <laughs> so, um, and we were thinking about it, which is why I kind of brought this up of like, if you both die, you're probably overinsured. Like we're totally overinsured. Like our nine month old will be like stinking rich if we both die, <laughs> but like he would be like all alone without parents. So um, <laughs> I think that like sometimes when you think about these life insurance numbers, you also actually have to think about your estate planning on the other side and how you want to handle it. Because like if you and your spouse both die, like it is really important that you have a plan for what, what would, what would happen to that money. Great point. Great point. Okay. Uh, let's move on to the next question. Morgan, I love the podcast. I'm wondering, my husband and I are in our thirties. We both work and we have kids. We spend our money like everyone else and we own a home. I feel like we're doing everything quote unquote, right. How do I know if I'm saving enough? How much money should I have saved if I'm in my 30s? Yeah, so this is a great question and one I get quite a lot. And again, this one depends. Yeah, like most things. <laughs> like, yeah, like really, really depends. And I think that um, the more people send in Q&A and the more I say it depends, people will realize like, hey, actually, it, pays, it makes sense to work with a planner. But um, 
I digress. So yeah, it depends on what your goals are. Um, and it's really hard to know if you're saving enough if you don't have goals laid out. Um, and I don't like just using the term goals because like goals implies, okay, like I hit that hurdle and then nothing else matters after that point because I already hit my goal. So who cares? So there's like, I think there's a difference and we should probably do a whole episode on this between like goals and systems. Um, and, but specifically for like, am I saving enough goals really matter? Um, because like, for instance, an example of somebody who wants to retire at 65, it looks really different than somebody who wants to retire at 45 and is currently in their thirties, like how much they have to have saved. Um, although depending on what their spending is, it actually might not look that different. Right. So like, it's kind of one of these things where it's, it's really hard to know without knowing other pieces of the puzzle. Um, that said, there are rules of thumbs uh, out there. And I actually, I kind of liked Fidelities that they put out. Um, but like, there are some caveats, and I will highlight those after the fact. But they had one where um, by by the age of 30, you should have one time salary saved um, and combined salary of married. So if you and your spouse each make 100 grand, you should have 200 grand saved by the time you're 30. And this is specifically for retirement. I should put that in there. So not like if you have any other goals like buying a house or I don't know, sending your kids to school or you want your kids to go to private school. Like this is specifically for retirement. Um, so, yeah. So they said one time salary by 30, three times salary by 40, six times by 50, eight times by 60 and 10 times by um, 67, which is the full retirement age. So I think these numbers are probably light, <laughs> um, but they're like a good guideline. But if you also work in that you're getting Social Security as well, I think that the numbers probably work out. So if we go back to using like that safe withdrawal rate, let's say you made 100 grand and at 67 you had a million saved because that would be 10 times salary. That safe withdrawal rate of 4% would mean that you could spend 40 grand a year. So I don't know what your spending looks like, but you're making 100 grand a year. Your spending is probably somewhere around... 40 to 50 grand a year, maybe a little bit higher. Um, so if you include Social Security, it would work out. That said, like, I'm in my 30s. I don't know if we're getting Social Security. So I don't know whether or not to bank on that and whether or not this rule of thumb really applies. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about that, Mark, but... Yeah, yeah. You know, I think it's a really great question. And I think it really comes down to uh, preferences. You know, what are you saving for? I think identifying exactly that. You know, if you're looking for some sort of level of financial independence where you have, you know, uh, several million saved and you're living off of passive income, right, and you're using the 4% distribution rate, then now it's just simply a function of math, right? I mean, if you if you assume a certain uh, compounding rate of return, you can figure out what your savings rate needs to be if you want to, you know, hit that million dollar mark so that you can live on 40 grand a year. And now that that really just depends on on how aggressive you want to get, right? I mean, presumably, if you if, if you if you save zero, then you know you'll never retire. And if you save one hundred percent of your income, well, then technically you're retired now. And so it's finding a balance there. Um, and I think another thing to point out too, because I know as this movement becomes bigger, looking at financial independence, retiring early, that's a hot topic. I think for most millennials is, hey, I hate my job. It sucks. How do I get out of it? And I think one thing to consider <laughs> is you don't want to burn out, right? Because that almost happened to me where you go so hard and you, you know, maybe hit a point where you're you're in deprivation mode, just chasing a number. And I think at that point you need to really think deeper because the math doesn't save you, right? You still need to think about what you'll do with your time if you do hit that number. And it it, it never hurts to look again at 
maybe part-time in- income because if you if you get halfway to your number and you don't like your job, well then maybe that's enough for you to to go off and do something that you really enjoy, right? And so you can you can take yeah. a hit on your income. So that's another way to look at it too is don't just focus so much on what how much you have saved, but also are there other ways you can make money that you enjoy doing? Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point. I couldn't agree more. Um yeah, like I think the one of the things that's missed in the fire movement, so financial independence, retire early, is the fact that if you really do retire at let's say thirty or forty and you don't have anything to do with your time, you will go insane. Um, and I've heard this from people where they're like, no, like I took six months off and I did yoga every day and I bike route, I rode my bike and I traveled and it's like, okay, you did that for six months. Could you do that every six months for the next like 50 years? (laughs) Um, and for most people that's no, like for most people, the thing that, that actually does bring them the most joy in their life is having a reason to get out of bed. And it's more than just like going to play golf. It's like they get out of bed because, they, there's something out there that needs them. There's something out there that is, there's an impact that they can, they can give back in their life. Like, um, like I know I find a lot of meaning in my work and with working with people, um, and even doing this podcast where, I mean, we don't know how many people are listening, but maybe we do touch a lot of people's lives, um, with the questions that we're answering today. And like, that gives me meaning and something for me to get out of bed in the morning. And I feel like it significantly affects how much you need to save if you're able to have, a part-time job. So like you said, like, even if you're, so let's say you were normally bringing in a hundred grand in income. If you're able to bring in 50 grand in income, that's significantly less that you have to save. Um, I mean, really for every, every 50 grand that you bring in an income, it's like a million less that you have to save for retirement. So you can think about it that way where like, I mean, that's me using a 5% withdrawal rate, not a 4%, but I mean, you kind of get the point that like it all adds up. So um, even 25 grand a year, now you only, you can save five hundred thousand dollars less, so. right? And that might take you an additional decade of work doing something you really don't enjoy, right? So now you have to balance: is it, is it worth? Is it worth it? Um, that's a that's a great point. The other thing too, Morgan, is you know we look at at savings rates. You know, there's a there's a double benefit to living within your means. The first thing, of course, is that you can save more money, which is wonderful. But se- mm-hmm. but secondly, it, it it also means that you you need to save less, right? You need less yes. money, which is another thing that most people don't think about. Uh, you don't need two hundred grand. You might need fifty if you if you can really avoid some lifestyle inflation, at least early on. If you're if you're younger and you're just coming out of college. Yeah, that's super true. So um, there's actually I did some work on this. I wrote a piece a couple of years ago now about kind of the rules around saving. So. Um, I would say like, as far as whether or not you're saving, you've saved enough up to this point, these rules won't want to, won't apply, but like, as far as what you should be saving going forward, these are some good rules to think about. So saving at least 10% of your pre-tax income will help you retire by the full retirement age. If you save 22 and a half percent of your income, like that, I know that number sounds really precise, but 22 and a half percent gets you, we, even with no savings right now, gets you retired in 20 years. So like obviously that number can move up or down based on like the 20 year number can move up or down based on how many, how much you have in assets now. Um, and the number one thing to look at is like really how much you want to spend when you're retired, because like your spending in retirement can actually look really different than your spending now, depending on what you want to do. So um, I'll give you an example. One of my clients um, has been talking to me about this. They want to 
work part-time um, during the warm months of the year, and then they want to be retired and traveling to warm places during the cold months of the year, uh, which makes perfect sense, right? When you, you've worked your whole life and you're in your 60s and it gets really cold when you get older. It's really cold for me now, so I can't even imagine what it's going to be like when, when I'm 67. But um, but yeah, so like they, they don't want to be basically in New York during the freezing cold winter, and I totally hear that. Um, so, right. But like just by adding that part-time work during the warm months significantly changes what it looks like for them, but like what they would need to save. But that said, they want to spend so much more on their travel than they would be normally doing like in their day-to-day life right now that we actually had to like totally look at what expenses would look like in retirement and reframe it for what it would look like for them going forward, how much they would have to save all that other stuff. So, it's a good idea to look specifically at what like what you want your expenses to look like in retirement because they could be very different than what they are today. Great, great. And I, I would also add, just to be careful, you know, when you're comparing, right? Because it's another thing you don't want to maybe compare too much, right? Like living, mm-hmm. in, you know, keeping up with the Joneses. I think again, it, it really depends. Are you comfortable? Um, but I think to 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 also point out, I, the authors of the Millionaire Next Door. I think Darko and, and Stanley, I think, are the authors of that book, and they they took some time and created a, some sort of calculation to give you an idea of how you stack up with with your peers that oh, are yeah. in the same age group, right, in in, in income mm-hmm. level. Um, and I and I want to say what they're trying to figure out is: are you a are you a, a wealth accumulator or are you not, right? And I mm-hmm. and, and I want to say the calculation is. Your age, so you take your age and you and you multiply it by your realized pre-tax income, household income minus inheritances, and then you divide it by ten, and that is on average where you where your net worth should be. Okay, yeah, you know what we'll do, um, and I love that you brought that up. I read that a while back, and that's a great point to put in for this question. We'll put that um, a link to that in the show notes. That way people can calculate where they stack great, up. Great, great. And I think one thing work. to note, yeah. Morgan, just on that is I think until you hit 40 years old, it, it looks pretty crappy, right? The reality here is that if you're <laughs> if you're 24 and you make 75 grand a year, you're not going to have that net worth, right? Uh, yeah. It, it, it takes a little while uh, for it to really play out, but I think it'll give you a pretty good idea of how you stack up. And really, forget about what other people are, are doing. I think it'll be a pretty good indicator for you. Like, hey, am I saving enough money? Am I, am I going to accumulate wealth or am I just going to spend it all? And I think that's something that you really want to kind of take control of is try to identify where you are and how you can improve. Yeah, definitely. And to that point as well, like it also matters what your goals are for your legacy. So like you might not want to die penniless right? You might want to give money to your kids. You might have philanthropic goals. You might have certain charities that have meant something to you throughout your life that you really, that you would love to donate to, um, and leave a legacy after you pass. Uh, these are things that you actually need to be thinking about now, which I know is really hard to do when we're in our thirties. Um, I know it's hard for me to imagine that and what I would want to give to and what goals I would want to have. But, um, Like if you know that education is really important to you, like it might be important to you to start a scholarship for even one child, Um, right? But like that's something that's actually really expensive and something that you would need to start planning for now. So like not to bring it back to what we said at the beginning about it it depending, but it really does depend on what you want to do and and how you want your life to look and the impact you want to leave even after you die. 
Yeah. The reality is, you know, as a culture, we're pretty bad at saving money. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want to say the average is what? 3%. We save about 3% on average. And I know that's just an average. Yeah, it's but really sad. It's, uh, yeah, it's really, that's really, really bad. So I, I would, I would try to improve that. Um, and, and you said, Morgan, you'd like to target a minimum of 10%. Yeah, clients. I think a minimum of 10% is a, is a good thing to target because like that does ensure that you will retire on time um, or at least reti- like retire on time compared to your peers who like are assuming that they'll retire at the full retirement age, which right now set by the government is age 67. So yeah, I would say 10% of your pre-tax income. So not after tax. Um, and then the other thing is like regarding shoulds, like, um, and I know that I talk about this, I have talked about this a lot in past podcasts, but like, don't beat yourself up about it. If you're not getting these numbers, right? Like you might go to the millionaire next door calculator and then feel like total crap when you find out that like, you're not wealthy. And you know what? That's okay. Like, that's just, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you did in the past. Uh, it doesn't matter all the stupid things you spent money on. We all have them. We've all done them, right? We've all made mistakes. It doesn't matter the bad investments you've made. It doesn't matter that you loaned your brother like $90,000 and he didn't pay you back. I mean, maybe you should have done that. But like, it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. What matters is like you're here right now. You're willing to make changes right now. You're listening to us because you want to make changes in your life. Like that's what matters. And it doesn't even matter what age you are. You could make it happen if you're willing to make changes right now. Wonderful. Cool. All right. Next any, question. Any other points? No, I think uh, I think we hammered that one home. Okay. Great. Great. <laughs> okay. Now we'll transition to retirement accounts. Uh, Roth versus traditional for IRAs or four hundred one ks. Which is better? I love this question, and it doesn't depend. That's the best part. <laughs> <laughs> Finally. So I get yeah, I get this question a lot. Um, okay. So here's the mind blowing thing about Roth versus traditional. It doesn't matter. I know you don't believe me, guys. I know. It's really hard to, to like even fathom. How could it not matter? It doesn't matter. So here's the thing about these accounts. If your tax rate stays the same your entire life, which I know is a huge assumption and probably won't happen. That said, it's really hard to know whether or not your tax rate is going to go up or down. And we can talk about that in this question. Um, but yeah, just hear me out. If your tax rate stays the same right now throughout your entire life, so right now and then into your retirement, you have the same exact tax rate. It doesn't matter if you put into a Roth or a traditional IRA. Um, so it's kind of irrelevant because we don't really know. It's a bet on your tax rate. Um, and there have been studies on it, right? So like you can kind of look, there's some, there's like this graph I looked at online, um, and we can link to it in the show notes, which basically says like your tax rates are definitely going to go up. And that's great, like based on historical data, but um, I like to say past performance doesn't equal present performance or future results. And we see that a lot on disclosures. And it's actually true about tax rates, too, and probably everything. Things that have happened in the past, yeah, they might dictate a little bit of what's going to go on in the future, but we don't necessarily know it with certainty what will happen. So because we don't know, I think it's better to diversify across these accounts if you have the option. That way, like you're actually more likely to have the same tax rate if you're able to put into both a Roth or a traditional, or like if you have the option of a Roth 401k at work to maybe split the entire contribution between the two accounts. That way, like you have this blended tax rate in retirement, much which will probably look much like the tax rate you have today. Great. I would say for those that are looking to retire early, 
you may want to consider a traditional IRA, uh, right? If you've got five or 10 years and your income's high and you plan on living off of passive income and your income's not going to be high five or 10 years from now, you might want to take the, the deduction now and then you can always convert it over into a Roth IRA when your income is low. So that's one little trick for those for those that are looking to retire early versus, of course, paying the taxes now in a Roth account and then, of course, you're done, right? You've already paid the taxes. There's no hack there. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I would also say, like, we're not going to put income limits or, like, what you can put into these accounts on this podcast just because they're always changing. Um, but I would say the one thing that's really kind of bizarre is the low income limit on the traditional IRA. So I think when I last looked, it was, like, $61,000 was the max you can make as a single person to put into a traditional IRA and actually take the deduction. Um, and that's kind of funny to me because your tax rate's really low, in which case, like, it doesn't really make sense to take the, <laughs> to take the deduction, right, Mark? Right, I, I don't right, know, correct right. me if I'm wrong here. Um, but yeah, so what I would say is like, probably good to take advantage of the Roth for as long as you can, just because like, at some point, your income will probably be higher than whatever the limit is at that point, and you won't be able to put into it anymore. And then it's a good way to diversify between accounts to have that blended tax rate later on. Um, and like, just check it every single year because the IRS, they, they change their rules all the time. So you might not be eligible one year, but if they raise the income limit and then you don't really get much of a raise or whatever, then you probably could contribute to a Roth that year. Right. Another thing to keep in mind too, is that the penalties are pretty stiff for accessing the funds sooner than your retirement age, right? Which is 59 and a half at this point. Mm -hmm. And one great option with the Roth IRA is that you can pull your contributions out at any time. And that's just to just to specify. That's just the contributions, tax free. You can take them out at any time if you if you run into a financial hardship or you just need the funds. Uh, the earnings within the Roth IRA. There's actually a five year rule. The funds need to be invested for five years before you can access the earnings on those contributions. But that's another cool little feature that the Roth IRA has that the traditional IRA does not have. Um, yeah, definitely. I would say it's probably a better tool. Well, there's this other rule too, which. I like, I'm even feel like silly saying on a podcast because it's like, it was mind blowing when I read it in my CFP textbook. Um, so the rule is even on a traditional IRA that if you take, so like, let me preface this. Let me go back a little bit. So right now the rules are, you can't, as Mark said, you can't take out from a traditional IRA before the age of 59 and a half without penalties. And the penalties are steep and you are required to take what's called required minimum distributions by the age of uh, 70. Um, so something to think about, or here's a 70 and a half. Yeah, it's 70 I believe and it's half. 70 and a half. Yep. Excuse me. Sorry. I should edit that out, but we won't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so 70 and a half, but there is this loophole, which nobody really talks about, um, because it's kind of confusing. And basically if you take out the same amount every single year, or if you use the IRS's distribution schedule for your age, then you're taking what's called an annuity out of the account and the IRS doesn't actually consider that to be a penalty. So um, you probably have to put in a lot of paperwork the first year that you do it, but you can equally distribute the traditional IRA throughout your lifetime. If let's say you retire early, you could you do you could have access to those funds if you do it right and should probably consult a um, an accountant on this, yeah, a, like a CPA before you do anything. I would not do this on TurboTax. <laughs> Great, great. <laughs> also, uh, uh, since you mentioned it, 
another advantage with the Roth is that you don't have RMDs when you when you turn 70 and a half, right? So that's a great, now you start talking about, do you want to pass assets down to heirs? And that's another wonderful thing to do because you don't actually have to begin taking distributions when you turn 70 and a half. And you can actually continue to put money into your Roth IRA after 70 and a half, whereas with the traditional IRA, there's a hard stop there. You can no longer continue to, to invest in that account. Not that most people want to continue investing in their IRA when they're 85 <laughs> years old, but uh, it's just another technicality. Yeah, for sure. No, that's a great point, Mark. Um, I would say the other thing is, so um, probably because I'm just assuming our listeners are exactly like me and they have children and are probably thinking about their estate plan. Uh, you don't want to name minors as a beneficiary on your account. I know this wasn't asked specifically in the question, but um, if you name your minor child as a beneficiary on the account and you and let's say your spouse who is the primary, like if you named your, your child as the contingent beneficiary and your spouse as the primary beneficiary, you and your spouse both die, there are rules around how that a minor can't really get the assets in that account and they wouldn't get paid on the same schedule, the same tax advantage schedule that traditional IRAs are known for, the account actually gets paid out in five years. So it's a really good idea when you're going through the estate planning process to make sure that you name, that you create a testamentary trust that gets created upon your death and that that is named as the contingent beneficiary for your children. Great point. All right. Anything else you want to touch on on these retirement accounts? Um, no, I think, why don't we just do one more question? Okay. And yeah, I know we had a bunch more questions, so we'll kind of keep them for another Q&A episode and definitely keep sending in your questions. So if you have questions that you want to get answered, you can, um, you can be, you can reach me at Twitter or you can reach me, um, on the website. So if you want to go to the website, you go to moneyowners.com, you scroll down to the bottom, you can submit a question through the contact page at the bottom. Um, I'm working on adding an Ask Morgan page, but I haven't done that yet. So until then, just scroll down to the bottom and put it in the contact. Or you can reach me at Morgan Rochard, M-O-R-G-E-N, Rochard, R-O-C-H-A-R-D. You can just DM me your question on Twitter. Or you can also send it to the Money Owners Twitter at money underscore owners on Twitter. um, And we'll add them to our queue. And with that, I think, like, let's just do question number five. And then we'll wrap up here. Great. So question five. Morgan, we have a large sum of money we need to put somewhere from the sale of our house last week. We would like to buy a home with the funds, but we aren't ready to make this decision. We want the funds to make money for us while it's sitting in an account, but we're not sure how long it'll sit there before we use it to buy a home. What do we do? Yeah, so this is a great question. I think probably applies to a lot of people, whether or not they want to buy a home or they want to buy something else that's a large purchase relatively soon. Um, And without going too deep into it, because we don't give investment advice on this podcast, especially without knowing everything about you. And nobody should give investment advice to anybody without knowing everything about that person. And I know that's not typically done, but I'm going to say it here. Um, But yeah, typically things that are going to be purchased in anything under three years should not really be invested. Um, And it's basically this. 
So regardless of your risk tolerance, your time, like regardless of what you think your risk tolerance is, right? Like you can have the highest risk tolerance known to man. You could want to put 100% of your assets in cryptocurrency at any given time, right? And (laughs) swing for the fences and then try to go buy a home in three years. Um, That's not generally recommended in the financial planning world, right? So like we consider anything that's a short-term liability, uh, a goal even that you're going to be putting money towards in the next three years, Um, in which case you really kind of want to keep that money in cash. Um, and there are good, um, there are good, sorry, savings accounts. I don't know why I had trouble saying that. There are good savings accounts out there. Um, they're called the, they're the high yield, um, interest savings accounts. Um, off the top of my head, Goldman Sachs has one. It's called Marcus. Barclays Bank has one. Um, I have a couple of clients that have an account at Ally. I believe Capital One has them too. There are a bunch of banks out there. You can you can basically go, I think Amex too. And like they're all basically yielding somewhere around 1.8 to 2%. Um, and basically, I would say that's the best place to put your cash. So you could definitely do a CD or something like that. But that said, like if you're not actually sure when you're going to use the money to go buy a new home, right? If you sold your home and you want to go buy another home with the funds, but you're not you're not ready to make the decision, that could mean that you're going to make it in three months, six months, a year, three years, you don't really know. So it wouldn't necessarily make sense to have it be locked up in a CD um, for for any given period of time just to get an extra like couple of basis points return, as we like to say. So an extra couple percent or whatever it is. It's not even that. It's like point something percent. Yeah, it would be <laughs> so, insignificant. Yeah, it would be insignificant given the penalties and other things that would occur when you go to take this out early. Um, and especially something like a home where you go into contract and then, you know, go into closing and you actually have to have the funds available, like you're more likely to incur penalties than not. So I would say like, if you're, if you're not sure when you're going to make this decision, but you know, it's not going to be for more than a year from now, maybe it makes sense to do some CD rolling. But otherwise I would say one of these high yield, um, interest savings accounts is probably good enough. I would agree. They're, they're super easy to work with. They're online and they are yielding. 2%, some of them are even a little bit higher as rates continue to creep up a little bit here as we speak, right? So, uh, because here it's it's really a function of having liquidity, right? That's that's really what's important here is that you have the funds when you need them. Um, and you know, the reality is that if you invest them in the market, there's variance, right? So it's just, it's, it's possible that within the three or four years, you, you actually have a few down years, right? And you don't have oh, five sure. or 10 more years to, to get it back, right? Yeah, absolutely, Mark. That's a fantastic point. Um, also, so there, like, you can think about bond funds and some of these other things too. And I don't want to get too nitty gritty in investment details, but same thing. Like, there, there is variance in bond funds as well. So if you were like really counting on a certain exact dollar amount for your down payment on your home, then I would say that's not a good way to go. Um, that said, there are like through some of these through a place like Vanguard. If you didn't want to have like a high yield savings account at one of these banks, you can actually have it at, at Vanguard themselves um, and just invest in like their prime money market account, which is pretty similar um, as far as liquidity is concerned. It would just probably take a little bit longer to like move funds from that account like back to your bank accounts. So there's like a time on um, what they call an ACH transfer to move money between these places and something that you should definitely take into account uh, regardless of like where you end up putting this money. Great. Okay, fantastic. We did it. All right, we stayed under an hour or two. We're at about like 45 minutes by the time this ends. So um, 
I want to thank everybody for listening. Again, if you have questions that you want answered on the Money Owners Podcast, please send them in. We'll probably be doing this every five to ten episodes or so, depending on how many questions we get in and also depending on how many awesome topics I come up with. (laughs) Um, And also because Mark is fabulous, we definitely want to have him back on. Um, Yeah, so I just want to thank everybody for listening. Have a fantastic weekend, and we will talk to you soon. Take care.